Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basaud. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I'm based in private practice in Harley Street, London. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Professor John Bisson. Uh, John is a professor in psychiatry at Cardiff University School of Medicine. His main research interests are in the field of traumatic stress. He's conducted various studies, including two widely cited randomized control trials of early psychological interventions, psychological debriefing and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, following traumatic events, and five Cochrane systematic reviews in the traumatic stress field. His work on early interventions following traumatic events has shaped thinking internationally. So, uh, Jonathan, let me start by um, asking you a little bit about the notion of uh, trauma. And um, in the media, we're hearing a lot about how this current pandemic is traumatizing people. Um, when clinicians use the word trauma or traumatizing or post-traumatic stress disorder in relationship to a pandemic like this, in what mm. sense are they using the word trauma? And how does it differ from the way the public may be thinking about it? Well, well, I think it's a very good question. And I mean, I think clearly the whole COVID-19 crisis is very traumatizing for everybody. And there are different elements of it that are traumatizing, some of which would meet the, if you like, stressor criterion for a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, and some of which probably wouldn't. So, for example, the trauma that perhaps a lot of us are experiencing at the moment with social isolation would not be a criterion A qualifying events for DSM-5 post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, which basically says that an individual has to be exposed to a traumatic stressor that causes actual or threatened death, serious injury or sexual violence. And so clearly within the COVID-19 experience, sadly, there will be a number of individuals who are exposed to criterion A qualifying events, but the nature of the trauma for a lot of individuals won't satisfy that criterion. That said, I mean, I think that a lot of individuals will experience symptoms that you or I might um, describe as symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, but they wouldn't be symptoms that we would um, make a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder from. Um, so there are lots of different events that will be happening to people, like they'll, they'll have a cough and then they'll worry, oh, this means I've got the thing. Um, or, sure. or they'll be out queuing in the supermarket and someone will cough next to them or they think someone has got too close to them or someone they know has rung them and said I've developed the disease etc etc so there are lots of different life yeah. events um, yes tell me a little bit about which of those life events would be considered traumatizing in the technical scientific sense of the word well I think thinking of something that's traumatizing I think all of those events can be traumatizing for an individual but not all of them would uh, be sufficient for one to say well you suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder to that event now that said as I said before I think the best way to look at this is that individuals will experience a range of different psychological symptoms in connection with any one of those and I think anxiety symptoms, maybe some depressive symptoms, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, like recurrently um, re-experiencing something that has happened to an individual, may all be prominent symptoms that people report. Um, but as I said, they wouldn't actually precipitate post-traumatic stress disorder according to the DSM-5 or, or ICD-11. Um, so a good example, I think, would be people working in hospitals who are confronted with individuals who are dying of COVID-19. Then 
by anybody's um, definition, that would be a criterion A fulfilling um, event. And likewise, individuals who are, um, you know, sort of witnessing people in whatever role they're in, dying of it or being severely severely unwell with it, then that would be a uh, criterion A satisfying event. So let's talk about healthcare workers, because there's a lot of stuff in the media at the moment about how healthcare workers are off because they're self-isolating, because they're not sure if they've got the yes. disease or not, or they've got the disease and that means they can't go to work. Um, to, to what extent, from your experience and knowledge, um, would healthcare workers, what proportion, for example, might be suffering from trauma as a result of going into work and seeing these these terrible events? And to what extent, what symptoms are they likely to suffer from? And, and how is it likely to impact whether they can keep going to work or whether they can perform well at work? Well... I think if you're self-isolating and off work as a healthcare professional, then you'll get a variety of different uh, symptoms. Clearly, anxiety, anxiety about your own health and well-being, anxiety about others, perhaps anxiety about people you've been in contact with, perhaps through your your work, patients that you've been looking after and whether they may have caught uh, the infection. Um, feeling bad, guilty because you're not able to go to work to support your colleagues is something that certainly we're commonly hearing about and uh, coming across. And I think ruminating on on that is likely to be a common sort of a a symptom. Um, I mean, if you look at some of the surveys that have been coming out um, amongst health care workers, for example, in, in China, then significant proportions of people are talking about common mental health symptoms, stress-related symptoms. But I think that for the vast majority of people, these would be what I would consider to be a normal reaction to a very extraordinary stressful situation. And I think it's really important not to pathologize such reactions. Um, For most individuals, they will come through that with the support of those around them by having, um, you know, being able to sort of take their time to get back into work, not being, um, you know, sort of challenged in any way or forced to feel guilty about that, what doing in any way, but just seeing it as part of the usual uh, process that one should be doing. If you look at some of the population surveys that have been coming out, for example, recently in the um, United Kingdom, there was a survey, uh, the results of which were published from Sheffield University and the University of Ulster. And that showed around about sort of 20 to 25 percent um, rates of common stress symptoms amongst the general or a nationally representative sample of the general population. So um, the, this borderline between something that's clinically significant, someone's got a clinical disorder, um, like post-traumatic mm. stress disorder, um, how does a clinician go about deciding when, when people have crossed that border? Because you said it's important not to pathologize um, yes. everyday, uh, everyday um, understandable reactions to difficult circumstances. Yes. So could you say a little bit about how a clinician will make the decision yes. that someone's crossed that border? No, sure. And I mean, it's the way that we would diagnose any uh mental health condition. Um, So we would basically be interviewing an individual. I think it's really important that we acknowledge that uh, an interview needs to occur, a clinical assessment to judge whether somebody has a condition or not, rather than a score on a questionnaire. I mean, a lot of us will use scores on questionnaires as a sort of source of information, but never is a questionnaire alone good enough to make a clinical diagnosis. And the way 
that I would go about it would be to interview an individual um, and use open questions and then more closed questions, perhaps if needed, to clarify the different things to explore whether they satisfied the criteria as laid down in our, um, you know, in our uh, classification system. So, for example, for um, the International Classification of Diseases, 11th version. Now, it's very clear that for an individual to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, they need to have been through a qualifying traumatic event. And we've already spoken a little bit about what may be the difference between a qualifying and a non-qualifying traumatic event. An individual has to have at least one re-experiencing symptom of which nightmares and flashbacks or thoughts with at least some um, feeling that you're actually back there in the situation is very important. You need to have one avoidance symptom of thinking about it, talking about it, or putting yourself in situations that remind you of it. And then one increased arousal symptom, such as um, an increased startle reaction or hypervigilance. And it's only if you've got that qualifying events and one in each of those three categories of symptoms would you meet the criteria for ICD-11 post-traumatic stress disorder as you know many listeners will be familiar ICD-11 has also introduced the parallel diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder and to satisfy the criteria for that in addition to having the diagnosis or the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder you also have to demonstrate um elements of disturbances in self-organization whereby you need one symptom of difficulties regulating your emotions one of interpersonal relationship difficulties and one of a persistent persisting negative self-concept so in both the ICD-11 and the DSM-5 they're very strict rules around what symptoms an individual has to have and then those symptoms if you fulfill the symptom criteria must cause you clinically significant distress and or um, a significant impact on your functioning in a variety of different areas. So I'm going to ask you a very unfair question, which uh, may lead you to one <laughs> screaming from the room. But um, these diagnostic criteria, they're deeply controversial in many um, disorders in psychiatry. Many professors of psychiatry don't agree necessarily with the committee yeah. in Geneva or in uh, sure. New York that decided how they're going to make the diagnosis. So what are yeah. your thoughts? I mean, do you think there's a rational reason for these criteria? Does it make sense uh, that the, the ones they've picked? And, and what, why, why they, what's the coherent reasoning behind the criteria they've picked? Well, I think they do make sense. I mean, I, you know, I totally agree with people's reservations about diagnostic criteria. And, you know, we could spend a whole podcast debating that. I mean, I think it's useful to sometimes or in clinical practice, for example, to have an, an agreement that is, at, you know, the best agreement at a point in time of a committee. It's what a committee have agreed at one point in time. Um, and I think for me, the ICD-11 criteria now make a lot of sense. And they, I think, in certainly in my clinical practice, take us a step beyond where we were before and also actually in my research practice as well. I mean, I think if we are talking about things, it's important that we know roughly what we're talking about. Although, obviously, when you're talking about developing new research to actually gain a greater understanding of what post-traumatic stress disorder truly is, then probably just focusing on individual symptoms is going to be a better way of doing 
that. Um, but for me, I find it useful to um, pull things together and be able to say whether somebody is suffering from a diagnosis or not according to a particular classification system. And actually, the people that I see, the people with PTSD and complex PTSD, I see seem to find that helpful as well. Now, in clinical practice, um, you know, does it matter that much on an individual basis? Well, it does. But if somebody has just got the symptoms or just not got the symptoms, that's probably not going to make a significant difference to my management, for example, or my suggested management of that individual. Now, let's talk a bit about treatment. Um, in the um, latest um, publications I, I, I've been reading, and I think you've written something recently um, about uh, this in the academic Mm. Uh, press. Um, there are certain drugs that the literature suggests are the ones that clinicians should think about using, and they're actually only a relatively small number. And there's lots of other drugs out there that we see being prescribed all the time for post-traumatic yes. stress disorder or trauma. So this is quite um, a, a, a restrictive um, injunction um, that you've made and, and others have made that mm. we should only prescribe the drugs for which the evidence. So what are those drugs? Um, and 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 um, could you say a bit about that? And then we'll talk a little bit afterwards about the psychological approach. No, of of course. So the pharmacological treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder is very important. I mean, over 80% of people that I see on first presentation to a traumatic stress service will be on medication. And for the majority of people, even though the evidence seems to be a bit better for psychological treatments, people will be receiving a combination of both psychological and pharmacological approaches. So my argument is that it's really important that when we are prescribing that we prescribe those pharmacological agents with the best evidence. And at the moment, the pharmacological treatments with the best evidence are really the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, fluoxetine, peroxetine, and sertraline, and the serotonin serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor, venlafaxine. And those four have got robust evidence of a small but positive effect. So I think it's really important that um, everybody understands that the evidence is very good, that they are effective. It's just that the actual effect size of that effect is relatively small. You know, that said, it's between 0 0.3, 0 0.4, that sort of an area. So people are likely to experience a clinically significant benefit from taking uh, one of these medications. I think the other thing to remember when prescribing is that the drug trials that have been done have tended to include um, doses that are much higher than the starting doses. And so when we've looked in some detail at the mean doses that individuals in the trials were receiving, they're at the higher end. So in the prescribing algorithm that we've just um, produced that was um, published in the March um, 2020 edition of the um, British Journal of Psychiatry, um, then the recommendation there is to carefully monitor individuals and if they are tolerating a drug but not perhaps showing maximum benefits from it, then to gradually increase that um, drug up to higher levels. If individuals don't benefit from one of those drugs, then you can always change to another one of those drugs. Um, and then there are other drugs where there is some evidence of um, an augmentation effect. And the drugs with the best evidence for that are praxisin uh, and then um, 
antipsychotics such as risperidone and also quetiapine. There's some evidence for that. I mean, I tend to favour as an antipsychotic um, prescribing quetiapine rather than risperidone just because of the side effect pro um, profile there. But pratazine is probably my um, second line or go-to agent in terms of augmentation for people who haven't benefited from one of those SSRIs I mentioned or, or venlafaxine. We also add advocate the prescription of other drugs, for example, um, for individuals with sleeping difficulties, such as adding in um, things like trazodone or metazapine in a low dose, um, and also um, for marked agitation. Again, drugs like ketiapine may be helpful for some individuals. I think going back to what you were saying before, we still see a lot of individuals with post-traumatic stress disorder prescribed other drugs. And I guess benzodiazepines are still unfortunately quite commonly prescribed, even though there is no evidence um, for the benefits of benzodiazepines for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. But that's very surprising um, to me as a clinician on the front line because the patients often arrive having been prescribed benzodiazepines. I was going to ask you about this particular point. Mm. I would say, in fact, my clinical experience is that they're much more commonly prescribed because of the anxiety symptoms and the, press yes. the pressing from the patient to have those taken away rapidly. Um, so the GP comes under pressure and does prescribe them. And, and also psychiatrists come under pressure, but also yes. psychiatrists tend to prescribe them Anyway, so it is quite interesting that the benzodiazepines are not on that list. It sounds like you would hold firm in not prescribing them. The other thing I would say, there's some very popular antidepressants that aren't on that list as well, which was quite surprising to me. Um, and you're, you're sticking to your guns. We should only prescribe those on the list. Yes, I mean, so, so dealing with the benzodiazepine point first, then I think there's little doubt that for a lot of people, having a dose of a benzodiazepine will be anxiety relieving in the short term. I think the issue is more one of dependency and long term tolerance on benzodiazepines. And I think that often people will be started on them and then be taking them, you know, often months and often years later when I start to see people. And it's very difficult then to help people to come off with them. Another point about benzodiazepines is that there is some evidence, albeit not overly convincing evidence, but nevertheless a definite suggestion that benzodiazepines can interfere with the um, trauma processing role early on. And so there's been a couple of early intervention studies that have shown individuals who've taken benzodiazepines to actually report more symptoms later on than those who didn't have benzodiazepines. And I think there are valid alternatives to it. I mean, clearly one has to be patient for the um, antidepressants to take effect and for them to work through. But I, I definitely would persevere with that. Um, and I do when I'm prescribing. And I don't think that I have bad um, outcomes from doing that. With respect to the other popular antidepressants, then I think, as we all know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence of effect when it comes to um, randomized controlled trial evidence, which is what I'm basing, um, you know, recommendations um, and this algorithm on. So there are other antidepressants that have not been trialed, perhaps, um, and which may be helpful. And it may be just um, an absence of evidence rather than not being potentially effective moving forward. There is good sort of single randomized controlled trial evidence for drugs such as amitriptyline, phenylzine and metazapine. And these are all drugs that I would use, but probably a second and third line drugs rather than first line drugs because of the actual evidence base and also the side effect 
profile. Another interesting drug that we might want to consider is escitalopram, which is very popularly prescribed. But there was um, a randomized controlled trial of individuals who were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder one month after a traumatic event. And in fact, there was no difference between escitalopram and placebo in that well-designed randomized controlled trial, which even though there isn't, there aren't other randomized controlled trials of that. That's made me somewhat wary of recommending it above the other treatments that I, I mentioned. Okay, now let's talk about psychological interventions. And you've hinted that you think the evidence base suggests that actually these are more effective than uh, drug treatments. And yes. um, one of the ones that is very striking, because it's, it's all over the internet and patients seem to have heard about it, um, and it seems very trendy, is this thing called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, or EMDR. Tell us, mm. tell us a bit about that, and tell us a bit about what the evidence base is, that that, whether that works or not. No, sure. So uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder that has now, believe it or not, been around for several decades. Um, and it was actually developed by a uh, psychologist in the USA. Um, and it's probably one of those treatments that has been bedeviled to a degree by being um, rolled out and implemented quite widely before perhaps the evidence-based um, supported such widespread rollout. That said, there is now robust randomized controlled trial evidence that um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is um, an effective treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And for example, the International Society for Traumatic Stress studies treatment guidelines would recommend it on a similar level or on the same level to trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. However, the NICE guidelines re recommend it perhaps slightly below um, trauma-focused cognitive uh, behavioral therapy because the evidence is felt to be not quite as strong for that. It's certainly true that there have been less randomized controlled trials looking at EMDR in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder than for trauma-focused CBT. Um, but when you do look at the head-to-head -head trials, overall, when you meta-analyze those results, they tend to be pretty much equivalent between those two treatment paradigms. And certainly in the traumatic stress service where I work, we tend to offer individuals a choice between them. Um, EMDR involves sitting down with a um, therapist identifying what key um, traumatic images are for you, associated cognitions with those images, and then focusing on those in a bodily feeling while you undertake um, bilateral stimulation, either in the form of your eyes following a tracker from side to side, or perhaps somebody tapping, um, you know, alternately on a part of the, the body so that your mind is being stimulated both ways. Um, it tends to be well tolerated, we've found. Um, and I guess for some people, it doesn't involve homework in the same degree as perhaps cognitive behavioral therapy approaches do, and so may be more accessible for some individuals than others. What's the theory about, about how or why that works? Well, there's big debates about the, the theories, the mechanism 
beneath this. And personally, I don't believe there is a convincing um, mechanism that's been proven to date. I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are several treatments in, um, you know, in psychiatry and mental health that we're not fully aware of what the mechanism is. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that if something works and we're not sure about the mechanism, then that shouldn't prevent us from doing it. I mean, some people would argue that the mechanism is distinct to, um, you know, the mechanisms that underpin um, trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapies, and others might uh, argue that they're likely to be overlapping with things like um, a habituation process being central, for example, to the processing that occurs. Okay, so um, what about this trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy you've been mentioning? Tell us a bit about yes. that. So trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy and most guidelines for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder would be the first recommended treatment or one of the first recommended treatments. Um, and trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy comes in various formats, as the name suggests. Um, the focus has to be on the traumatic event itself, and then the therapy involves a combination often of both cognitive approaches where you're trying to look at thoughts that have perhaps emerged as a result of the traumatic events, perhaps feelings of guilt, shame associated one, with one's actions or what happened at the time, and then trying to challenge those cognitions through usual cognitive therapy methods such as Socratic questioning or presenting evidence in different forms that challenge underlying beliefs an individual may have. In addition to cognitive therapy, then often there's an element of what we call a more behavioural approach of which exposure is the commonest uh, form of that. Um, one thing that a lot of us were brought up on that have been in the field for many years is prolonged exposure, where we would work with an individual to develop a detailed account of the traumatic event as if it were all happening again in the here and now with a vivid detailed um, recollection that the individual will articulate of the event itself. Several of us would then record that and ask the individual to listen to it over and over again as homework. And that really is based on a more classical sort of um, habituation paradigm in terms of the mechanism that we're trying to um, mobilise with that. In parallel, a lot of individuals in their treatments will try and develop in vivo exposure. For example, an individual, um, you know, may have become very traumatized, for example, through COVID-19 um, to go into a particular hospital because it brings back very vivid memories of what actually happened. And part of treatment might involve a graded exposure approach to allowing that and helping that individual go back to that hospital um, to be there and to actually, um, you know, see their anxiety come down while they're actually in that environment that um, has become associated and almost become a condition still stimulus or has become a condition stimulus for the trauma that they've been through. So I don't want to go through all the psychological treatments because there's no. quite a large number. Let's just um, focus on one or two others just to get a sense of what else is out there in terms of the principles of treatment. What about this reconsolidation of traumatic memories or RTM treatment? This seems very interesting to me, but I'm not sure whether there's evidence that it works or not. No, I agree. And it's, it's very interesting to me as well, actually, not least because it's uh, 
you know, a treatment that's based on a different mechanism yeah. of action. Um, and this treatment is actually arguing that when individuals become traumatized at the start of a trauma, the traumatic memory is laid down in a, a an almost too strong manner or it becomes very very vivid the uh, recollections that you get of that memory very different to the usual memories that you or I would lay down and one of the theories with that is that we get this Oversurge, if you like, of adrenaline. And so adrenaline, we know, lays down memories with much more emotional salience around them than if we haven't gotten a big adrenergic surge at the time. And reconsolidation of traumatic memories and other associated techniques, such as the rewind technique, will actually, a therapist will help the individual to mobilize that traumatic memory. So, for example, through thinking about it, talking through it, and in this instance, watching it as if it's a film on a screen and that you're sitting in a cinema watching it on a screen. Once that film comes to an end, the individual is then instructed to rapidly rewind that film back to the beginning, back to a safe point at the beginning of that film. It sounds a bit strange, but in relatively short amount of time, probably three or four minutes, an individual has done the reconsolidation work. Um, and if done correctly, and I've witnessed this, individuals can seem to reconsolidate that memory in a far less dramatic way than it was initially consolidated at the start of the, the treatment. There have been two randomized control trials done now um, with veterans actually in the United States, both of which have been very positive in their outcomes and shown very large effect sizes. But they've been done by the originators of the technique and clearly replication is, is required in, in the International Society of Traumatic Stress studies treatment guidelines, we gave um, a recommendation of a treatment with emerging evidence to um, reconsolidation of traumatic memories, which is essentially saying that this wouldn't be something we'd recommend as a first line treatment at the moment, but certainly would be something to consider. For example, if an individual hasn't tolerated or hasn't got better with other treatments, and also certainly um, a treatment that individuals should be considering um, focusing on for further research in the field in the future. But the bit you haven't mentioned, which I thought I read about, and I, I could be wrong here, is about the, the fact that in the treatment, people imagine the movie like you mentioned, um, yeah. but, they, but they imagine it as a black and white film. Have I, have I got that wrong? Or is that a part of the treatment? Or is that just a different version of the treatment? You're right. Um, so there are different versions of the technique that are performed in slightly different ways. Some people, and in the reconsolidation of traumatic memories version of which the two randomized controlled trials have been in, then the black and white element is there. But the purpose of that is really to help the individuals create a bit of distance between them and the trauma. So unlike in an exposure therapy where you're actually asking the individual to really confront in vivid detail the trauma, we with the um, mobilization of the traumatic memory, you're asking the individual to mobilize the memory, but with a bit of distance, if you like, between you and the individual. So one way that I often think of that is that when we're talking about therapeutic windows, 
um, we're often trying to take an individual and exposure therapy almost up to the level of distress that they can tolerate before becoming overwhelmed by it. With reconsolidation of, tra of traumatic memories, you're trying to take them into a window of mobilization that doesn't cause a lot of distress. The aim is not for the individual to be distressed with the traumatic memory, but for them to be thinking about the traumatic memory before you do the rewind process. So on that basis, it's likely to be um, a better tolerated um, uh, form of treatment for people with PTSD if it is shown to have the same efficacy that, for example, prolonged exposure has been shown to have. What I find particularly interesting about this particular area is the, the it loops back to a very interesting part of the philosophy of mind, um, and, mm. and many people are going to run screaming from the room at this point, which is about the notion that memory isn't like videotape it's more like imagination that actually there's a conflation mm. between the two that when we mm. remember something actually we're deploying our imagination that's a theory anyway much more sure. than we think we we are and therefore sure. that that loops back to the fact that trauma and the memory of the trauma um has a lot more to do with our imagination than simply a replaying of videotape which is why mm. i find this particular treatment so interesting because i think it's mm. it's playing into that territory what is memory what is imagination i don't I wonder if you have any thoughts about that no i think that's a really interesting point and i i i think it's absolutely true and i mean you know there have been a few studies that have looked at you know, the actual trauma and how it happened and then compared that with individuals with post-traumatic stress disorders, reported memories and what the content of their flashbacks and their nightmares are, for example. And oftentimes they're not exactly the same. So as you say, the imagination has played a key role in it and it's become much more of a monster, if you, you like, than what actually happened at the time. And that's not to say that that's the case in every event. And often, you know, we are confronted with things that were horrific at the actual time and are horrific now. And as we know, the uh, a trauma has to be horrific to get into that qualifying thing. But often a memory has become even more horrifying and terrifying than the in, than the original event for the individual that we're we're seeing, and so with reconsolidation of traumatic memories, you're asking them to recount the memory as they remember it now, and so often that isn't identical to what the actual event was at the time. What you are, however, trying to be very very careful about is that you are helping an individual to distinguish between thoughts that have emerged since, for example, I should have run away, I should have done this, I should have done that, which clearly an individual wouldn't have been thinking about at the time, because those can be very helpful to help an individual challenge the guilt um, feelings that they may have later on. So um, we're running out of time, and it's been a fascinating interview. Thank you very much for talking to us. But one, again, question which may um, uh, be an unfair question. There is a sense in which we are facing an extraordinary, unprecedented um, predicament. Some people describe it like being in a war. Um, and there's a sense in which our culture as an affluent, comfortable society wasn't really prepared for this, and it all happened really fast. Um, do you have any thoughts about the fact that we often refer to previous generations, the generation that dealt with World War One, dealt with World mm. War Two, as having a different cultural background in which they approached suffering and distress and trauma. And that somehow mm. meant that they dealt with it differently to the way mm. we might deal with it. Is there is there a sense of which historical epochs, um, different cultures, different backgrounds that people come into this situation with ha has an effect um, in terms of how they cope? <laughs> 
If that's not too weird a question. No, 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 no. I think it's uh, I think it's a good and an important question. In that, I think that there's definitely evidence that sort of being prepared for things and training for things in a way does help you to deal with things better. And I suppose you could argue that if you've been through more things that have been difficult and you've managed to develop ways and coping strategies to deal with them previously, then you may be better prepared to go through another thing that may be similar, you know, maybe more extreme, but nevertheless, you've got some resources that you've built up over time to deal with these things. I mean, I think we are being um, confronted with things that certainly many of us have never been through the like of at all before. And so we are outside our, our comfort zone well and truly now. I mean, I think one thing that um, has been an interesting thing that's been coming up in recent times, but mainly in probably military settings, is the concept of moral injury. And this is something that I think is being increasingly spoken about as something that perhaps healthcare professionals may need to confront um, if the COVID-19 um, crisis develops, um, you know, to the extremes that it could potentially do, um, and that we're trying to prevent it from developing to as a result of the sort of the social isolation measures. But if an individual, for example, has to make decisions that they're very uncomfortable about, for example, having to prioritise treating certain individuals over, over others, then that can leave individuals with very grave sort of moral and ethical dilemmas that I think a lot of us don't feel well equipped to determine and clearly puts individuals at risk of experiencing you know, significant difficulties as a result of, you know, things like shame, you know, guilt, other sort of negative feelings about oneself. I think the important thing to emphasise in all of this is that, um, you know, the human race as a whole um, is very resilient. And I think that people are very resilient as well. And my prediction is that, um, you know, people will continue to be resilient. And I think we're seeing a lot of that around at the moment. So even though individuals will have very natural and normal reactions, then I think an awful lot of people will have resources, coping strategies, the social support networks required to help them move through that. And they won't be coming into contact with the likes of you and I, because they won't be developing, um, you know, pathological reactions to what's happened. And it will be a minority at the end of the day that need people like us, that need fuller assessment, you know, maybe diagnosis of a condition. And then I think it's our duty to then provide them with evidence-based approaches to treatment and management, or at least help them to make informed choices as to how they would like um, us to help them to manage their conditions. Yeah, so one final point is, um, as I understand it, there is some ongoing psychological research tracking um, the population. Um, mm. and it, it kind of started around the time that the we became aware that the pandemic was breaking over us. And in yes. fact, that survey data does seem to suggest, although their, their, their levels of anxiety and depression have risen a bit, mm. they surprisingly have not risen as much as you might have thought they would do. And that, in fact, what the survey data suggests is people are being remarkably resilient. I don't know whether you would interpret the data that way as well. No, I, I would as well. I mean, I think we're, you know, we're seeing, you know, perhaps levels about a third or so, according to that survey, above what you would expect um, in the general population at a given point in in time. Um, so, you know, sort of levels of between 20 and 25 percent of people record 
reporting some sorts of anxiety or depressive um, symptomatology. So, yes, I think people are being very resilient. I think, in fairness, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, then the actual stress that the majority of us have had to confront at the moment wouldn't be at the level of, you know, fulfilling the traumatic stress or criterion for um, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, I sincerely hope that remains the case. If the stressor becomes much worse, then I would expect those um, levels to increase to a degree. But whatever you look at, um, you know, the majority of people don't develop pathological responses unless you get into the realms of very, very, very extreme um, traumatic events. So, you know, I think that there's cause for optimism that um, we as a society, and particularly if we support one another and put in place ways of providing good social support to one another, that we, um, we will be able to remain well and to keep each other well, even though clearly we will all have to deal with the natural stress reactions that anyone would experience um, during a stressful period of time. Uh, Professor Jonathan Bisson, uh, Professor of Psychiatry at Cardiff University School of Medicine, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.